Proverbs chapter 5. And we are going to be reading this chapter. And uh, I think it's quite interesting how the Lord again has displayed his providence in bringing us to this portion of scripture on Sunday evenings. And later, earlier this week, I received an email from um, the, uh, is he still the dean? He's not the dean of, no, he's the chancellor. Um, John MacArthur from the Master's Seminary and College. And I'll read that with you tonight. But, but let's read Proverbs chapter 5 and get our minds wrapped around what God's word has to say regarding warnings of wisdom to a wayward wanderer. Okay, this is biblical sexuality approached here by Solomon in Proverbs chapter 5. He says, my son, in verse 1, I'm reading from the NASB tonight. I'm not reading from the King James. I think the NASB has some uh, more clear language in it. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed And you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. This is Proverbs chapter 5. There are two major reasons uh, as to why we know that the Bible is the word of God. The first is that man is not the hero of the Bible. Uh, man wouldn't write the book this way. The Bible paints clearly the reality of man's depravity. For instance, after the flood, Noah gets drunk. And we read that Ham uncovers his father's nakedness. Uh, If we were writing the story, we wouldn't include that. We would hide Noah's drunkenness. Um, Same vein is Sodom's destruction. Uh, Mankind was running rampant in that homosexual sin of Genesis 19, and Sodom is destroyed with brimstone and fire from heaven. David's adultery. If man was writing the Bible, we would not include that, because David's sin is open for all to see. The same thing goes for Solomon, and Solomon's 1,000 women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. We wouldn't include that. It's quite, as a believer to hear that, we just instinctively say, ugh, that's bad news. That's a bad idea. That is not wise. So if man were writing the Bible, he he would make himself the hero. He wouldn't speak so plainly about his depravity, but God does, because this is the word of God. Secondly, the reason that we know that the Bible is the word of God is that the clear biblical ethic 
that is derived from who God is, as God has revealed his character. There, are, uh, there is right and wrong. Uh, for instance, adultery is bad because it destroys families. It destroys careers. It destroys marriages. It destroys physical health. It destroys spiritual health. It destroys fellowship and relationship to God. Marriage is good, healthy, joyful, fulfilling, and honoring to God, the Bible says. And man's fallen instinctiveness is to pursue the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's his natural desire, is to pursue what he wants. It's all about him. Because instinctively and naturally he is a follower of Satan. And what Proverbs chapter 5 reveals is that this is the way of wisdom to avoid such temptation. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the knowledge of God, or it is the truth of God. And what Solomon paints clearly here is that the truth of God, or the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, guards us from temptation to sin, especially sexual sin. We are warring against this. And the wisdom of God is the only shield, if you would, is the only fortress that protects the people of God from falling into this rampant iniquity. I have four headings for you tonight if you're going to take notes. And we'll break this chapter down. This will be a, a, a somewhat of an outline for you. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see the signs. The signs. In verses 7 through 14... We're going to see the sickness, the sickness. In verses 15 through 19, we're going to see the sweetness, the sweetness. And finally, in verses 20 through 23, we're going to see the senseless, the senseless. So you have the signs, the sickness, the sweetness, and the senseless. Among the many sins that are publicly on display in the United States of America and around the world, but predominantly in the United States today, would be the sins of homosexuality or the sins of sexual immorality. We have gender confusion. This afternoon I typed into the computer, how many genders are there? The answers varied from 112 to 63. But predominantly, I was surprised to find out that no one said two. PublicHealth.com defines gender as this. Gender is socially constructed, period. Gender is hierarchical and produces inequalities that intersect with other social and economic inequalities. That is textbook critical race theory. That is textbook intersectionality. This, this publichealth.com goes on to say that gender is not confined to a binary, nor is it static. It exists along the continuum and can change over time. Hence the phrase gender fluid that you've probably heard. There are only two genders. That's the way God has created male and female. One prominent atheist of our day, Richard Dawkins, quipped that the Christian religion was nothing more than the restraint of one's sexual urges in order to appease an invisible God. Now the stark reality, and I find it to be glaringly, uh, just so blatantly open, is the reality of the display of the atheistic worldview running rampant in the unrestrained sexual passions which are permitted to dictate the pattern of culture and society in the time in which we live. There is utter devastation resulting from atheistic pursuit of sexual immorality, and their stone that they like to throw back at the church is the, is the idea that somehow Christian religion is just nothing more than a sexual restraint. The stark reality couldn't be more blatantly obvious that the real problem is on the other end of the spectrum. Whenever a culture, whenever a society imbibes 
or allows itself to be overwhelmed with these unrestrained sexual passions, devastation and judgment will always result. Now, the church has largely acted in silence when it comes to biblical sexuality, I believe, for three reasons. Now, now of course, there are the bad cases throughout history, okay? There's the crazy wingnuts that go and go under the name Christianity, and they essentially just throw mud on everything and make everything look bad, and they, they treat these circumstances from an outside-the-Bible approach. They, they are not approaching these issues biblically with a gospel-centered mind. They're, and they take the name of Christian, and they damage the, the gospel witness for so many. But what I want us to focus on tonight is, is why has the professing church, the biblical Christian church, why have we kind of fell silent on this for the last at least end of the 20th to the beginning of the 21st century? I think it's for three reasons. One, and from a pastoral standpoint, I can be quite honest with you, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's uncomfortable to be teaching and preaching about biblical sexuality to a degree. And the thing that I always fall back on is the fact that it's in the Bible. God teaches it. Preach it. So, so there really shouldn't be any uncomfortability with this. Uh, there needs to be a gentleness. Number two, biblically speaking, parents are tasked with this uh, issue of instructing their children in the area of biblical sexuality. It's the parent's job. Unfortunately, most parents are biblically illiterate. Or they are themselves taking part in sexual sin. And therefore they feel like they can't teach their children because they themselves have this guilt upon them. And they don't want to teach their children about biblical sexuality. And finally, and I think this may be the most predominant case, parents just aren't in the picture. Uh, we, have, we have kids that are just fighting for themselves and they're learning from the world. And that's just the way it is. Mom and dad aren't around. Um, this is why several months ago I was so adamant about building family worship and bringing the family back together around the word of God. I think that our culture and our time is in desperate need of that, um, a return to biblical Christianity in the home. That church is so much more than just an hour and a half, two hours out of the week. Um, it, it's, it's involved with the family. And finally... And as what I think we're seeing now is that the church has remained largely silent in these areas of biblical sexuality because we have a fear of being imprisoned for doing that which is taboo in the eyes of culture. And in most states already, and I say most because they're the larger states, um, this is considered illegal to approach homosexuality with an evangelistic uh, mindset. Um, you know, every time, it, I think it was Jay Adams who said, every time you get into a biblical counseling situation, the number one thing you must determine is, is this person saved? We're not just talking about homosexuality. We're talking about somebody can't stop stealing candy bars from Walmart. If they come to you, the number one thing you want to establish is, does this person know the Lord? Does this person profess to be a follower of Christ? So regardless of homosexuality or adultery or stealing popsicles, the real thing is we want to establish does this person know Christ. There's an evangelistic tone to this counseling. But today, as what we're going to see now, is that this is quickly becoming illegal, even with ramifications of being imprisoned. So here's the letter. And I promise we'll get to the text and we'll explore the text some more. But I wanted to give you this uh, introduction as to why we are approach approaching this now. Um, earlier this week, I received this, this email, and it was a letter, and it says, Dear Minister, Dear Pastor of the Gospel, I write to you this Christmas season to call your attention to an urgent matter in which the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is under attack. On December 22nd, I received an email from Pastor James Coates of Grace Life Church, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And you will remember that he was recently imprisoned for keeping his church open during COVID-19 lockdowns. James is a graduate of the Master's Seminary. He's co-authored a book now with Nathan Buzenitz, and it's an excellent book called God and Government. James' recent email gave me insight into the Canadian government's decision to pass Bill C-4, which directly, quote, directly comes against parents and counselors 
who would seek to offer biblical counseling with respect to sexual immorality and gender, end quote. James indicates that it could be used to, quote, criminalize evangelism. There's the big threat, okay? I want you to focus on that, that these political movements are slowly dwindling the ability to evangelize with the gospel, whether that's in the street or even in the church. To clarify the bill, James forwarded me this email from Pastor Andrew DiPartolo. Here's, here's the letter. Pastor John, thank you so much for your willingness not only to shine a light in the situation here in Canada, but also your partnership in calling other men to preach on biblical sexuality on January 16th in unity and solidarity with the ministers here in Canada. I and we are truly grateful for your ministry and service. Bill C-4 passed through the House and the Senate without opposition. Not a single dissenting vote was cast by any member of the Conservative Party. It received royal assent on December 8th, which means it will come into law after January 8th, 2022. The bill will amend the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. Don't jump to any conclusions yet. We're gonna, this is going to explain this, okay? That's a rather ambiguous term, and I want to make sure that we're not jumping to conclusions. It will criminalize, among other things, quote, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy, end quote. So that's part of the bill. It says that it will, among other things, criminalize that. In the preamble of the bill, it says that the belief that, this is the belief that, quote, heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. The bill labels it as, quote, a myth. So to, to paraphrase what I've just read there, it is now a myth to say that there's only two genders as assigned at birth. According to Canadian law, as of January 8th, 2022, the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality will now be seen as a myth. The bill defines conversion therapy as, quote, this is what the bill defines this conversion therapy as, a practice treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation or heterosexual change uh, to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender. If you don't know what cisgender means, it's the gender assigned at birth. Repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. Repress a person's non-cisgender identity or repress a person's uh, reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth, end quote. The letter goes on to say the definition is intentionally broad, I would agree, and it can clearly be used against any preacher or elder who either speaks against homosexuality slash transgenderism or who counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual or transgender actions and lifestyle. This means that as of January 8th, 2022, it will be against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. Quite plain there. Um, This is already going on in the United States and several states, which we'll see here in a minute. This is also included in the bill. Quote, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years, end quote. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. Let me paint this clear for you. If this was Canada, you could be indicted because you're promoting the preaching of a pastor who preaches biblical sexuality. This has happened before. This has happened before in the past. I'll allow you to dig that out because we have too much to cover. But this just said five years for the preacher and two years for the people. If you really want to get down to it, if you support that, uh, that you teach anything evangelistically with regard to someone who's in sin, 
On January 16th, 2022, faithful men across the country and many in the United States as well will be preaching on God's design for marriage and a biblical ethic of sexuality. We'll probably be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 for the 14th. No, um, for the 14th time. We will be doing so illegally. Declaring to the state, this is this man in Canada, declaring to the state that there is one God and one Lord over his church and that Christ alone gets to both define marriage and dictate what is required in the pulpit. We are honored that our American brothers will be joining us in this. He goes on to say, please feel free to let me know if there are any questions or require any more information. Yours in Christ, Pastor Andrew De Bartolo, teaching elder at Encounter Church in Canada. Now, John MacArthur continues to write, he says, I am eager to support our Canadian brothers and to preach on biblical sexual morality on January 16th, and I invite you as a faithful pastor to do the same. Our united stand will put the Canadian and the U.S. governments on notice that they have attacked the word of God. We are well aware of the evil power and destructive influence of the homosexual and transgender ideology. Our government is bent on not, on not only normalizing this perversion, but also legalizing it, and furthermore, criminalizing opposition to it. In 2012, now here's some information I think will be helpful for you, okay? In 2012, California passed Senate Bill 111-70, excuse me, 1172, banning, quote, gay conversion, alongside New York, New Jersey, and Nevada, I think Utah is also since caved to this as well. So now it is completely illegal in these states to offer any kind of gay conversion therapy or counseling. In doing this, the California government sought to prohibit any correction of, of an unbiblical view of sexual identity because, quote, California has compelled interest in protecting the well-being of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals, end quote. And on August 18th, 2020, the Democratic Party declared at the National Convention that it would ban harmful, quote, ban harmful conversion therapy practices. The Obama administration appointed more than 250 LBGTQ plus people to serve in the, in the government, and the Biden administration has promised to increase that number, and they have done so thus far. As aggressive as the political priority is to make per, uh, perversion safe from criticism in the United States, Canada is even further ahead. Europe is even further ahead than that. Amending the code to include, quote, conversion therapy. Since this law takes effect on January 8th, 2022, faithful Canadian pastors are going to preach on the issue calling for a biblical understanding of sexual sin. The eternal judgment. This is very important, guys. I know I'm reading a lot here. We're covering, I'm, I'm giving you the whole letter. But I hope that this is somehow in these pieces. I hope that it's filling in some gaps for you. This is really the heartbeat of the whole thing. The eternal judgment that falls on the unrepentant and gospel rejecting sinners and the grace of God in the gospel, which offers forgiveness to those who repent and believe in Christ. As Paul said, as we've studied when we studied 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, Paul articulates all of the sins, drunkenness, effeminate, homosexuality, adulterers, and he says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed. There has been a change that has taken place. There's something greatly drastically impacting a human's life whenever they turn from their sin and they repent of their sin and look to Christ. Do they still battle with sin? Of course we do. But yet now we're looking to Christ and battling against that sin is, is, the, is, the, is what the Christian life is all about. Our sins have been forgiven in Christ and yet we strive to be more like Jesus Christ. Or... Do you not know that this is, he, he reads the, he cites the, uh, what I just quoted to you in 1 Corinthians 6. And then he goes on to say, will you stand with me and our Canadian brothers uh, and confront this issue? Um, and there's a, there's a, a question to sign a letter supporting the, the movement of, to preach on this January 16th on biblical sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I haven't fully convinced myself that we're actually going to preach on that on January 16th. I may, I think it's an important issue, but um, especially for the time in which we live, we just open our arms full on. As of 2015, this as a country, we've just said, yeah, it's normal. 
Um, and this is like recent in our own lives. This is six years, seven years ago now. The battle for biblical sexuality may seem frighteningly overwhelming. It is a monumental task in a seemingly losing battle for purity uh, and biblical living in a world bent on destroying any notion of a sovereign God who reigns and rules and will judge all men. We may, we may feel like, well, what's little, what are we going to do? This is such a huge issue. And here we are. We're like 25 people talking about talking about this in a closed room, what's, what's this matter? We still need to understand what the Bible says about these things. But while the task may seem futile, we know that there is lasting joy and forgiveness and fulfillment found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lasting eternal life and freedom from sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the most joyful thing? Isn't that the most joyful loving news that you could give to anybody? Is that there is freedom, there is joy, there is forgiveness of sins in the blood of Christ. It's, it's, it's the good news. It is the good news that saves sinners. And Jesus himself, he says that, when he prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, he says, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. How do we engage the culture? How do we engage unbelievers with the truth of the word of God? We will, there's the answer. We do it through the truth of the word of God. We must address this issue with the word. That's what Solomon says. All that to, by way of introduction in verse number one of Proverbs chapter five. Solomon says, my son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Well, what is your wisdom? What is your understanding? It is the word of God. It's the truth of who God is. It's the knowledge of God. God's word brings discretion and knowledge. God's people will speak with discretion and knowledge because their hearts have been changed by the word of God. Notice what he says, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge from out of the heart. The mouth speaks, right? From out of the heart, the words will flow. If your heart has been changed by the word of God, by the spirit of Christ, you will speak according to the truth and knowledge and wisdom of God. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. I thought this was quite... Interesting illustrative language. This, these adulteresses, they speak with this cunning, enticing, luring words that please the flesh. They speak with flattery like sweet honey, enticing, exciting, racy words, provocative words. They speak lies. They'll say things like, like it'll be okay. Everyone does it. Don't worry, as in Proverbs chapter 7, the good man of the house, he's not even home. Don't, don't worry about it. They'll speak these words, these, these, these words that are enticing and hooking into the flesh. And then the, Solomon goes on to say that they are, they are the, the speech, the, verse 3, and smoother than oil is her speech. It's, it, she is a smooth talker. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Where did we just hear the word wormwood? And we're in our Revelation study on Wednesday evening, the, the meteor that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 8, verse 11 is called wormwood. What does that meteor do? It hits the earth and it poisons all the water. It makes it bitter. Now, in ancient times, in the pagan cultures that um, Solomon would have been well familiar with and John would have been well familiar with, they would take this root, this bitter root, and they would put it into a vat of water and it would become fermented. It would become bitter, but it was like a drug. And they would imbibe this and it only took just a slightest overdose and you were dead. But if you could manage that fine line, like so many of the drugs today in our culture, if you could tote that fine line, you would have this euphoric, drunkenness, numbness, paralyzed state of euphoria. But if you just took it a little too far, you were dead in an instant. This is what Solomon equates to the words of an adulteress. Just a smidge too far and you're dead. It is, as, it is as poisonous as death. It is as poisonous as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword. It doesn't just cut on the downstroke. It cuts on the upstroke. It's cutting in every direction. Her feet go down to death. 
Her, her words, her steps take hold of Sheol, or the place of the dead. She does not ponder the path of life. I think this is so interesting. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. She's blind to these things. She doesn't think past the here and now. She can only see as far as the nose on her face. Instantaneous satisfaction. Isn't that the license plate of our day? That's the bumper sticker. Instantaneous satisfaction. Give it to me now, McDonald's style. It is just here and now. Don't think about the future. We live for today. Tomorrow we die. Just as the Bible says that eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. They don't think past the next five minutes. She can't see it. Why? Because she's blind. This adulteress, and she has no idea that she is blind. She does not know. She does not know it. This is, if you think about this for just a moment, she doesn't know her own blindness. Isn't that a sobering thing to consider? How often should we compare ourselves with the Word of God? This woman that Solomon is describing, this adulteress, she doesn't know she's an heir. She's completely blind to it. It's so very easy for us to end up in this situation where we think that we have it all figured out. How do we compare? Like, what, what, by what standard do we look? We must constantly be comparing ourselves to the word of God, the wisdom of God. This is the mirror to which we look. Ultimately, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are constantly comparing our ways. We are constantly seeking God's will, the path of our life through the teaching of the scripture. Now, this leads us to our second heading, the sickness, the sickness. Verse seven. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house. Don't even look at the door. If you hear these sweet honey-like words, Turn and run away. Does that remind you of anybody else in the Old Testament? Joseph. I love Joseph. I love him. He, he starts to feel these adulterous, sweet, honey words that Potiphar's wife is, is giving to him. And she is pursuing him and pursuing him. And he, he ends up running away. He runs away from the situation. He gets out of there. He still gets arrested for it. But he did the right thing. He sought to honor God instead of pursue his own selfishness. He, the Solomon says, don't even look at the door. Get away from the door. If you hear these words, you hear these indictments, get away. Don't even consider it. Flee like Joseph uh, from Potiphar's wife, men and women who are caught up in the, the attachments of the flesh, they give up years of their lives, years. So many young people, I see these young girls, they get so caught up in these boys and they get stir crazy for these boys and they go crazy for these boys for two or three years and then it all falls apart and they're in tears and they're walking away like, what happened? I'll tell you what happened, you were dumb. Don't, 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 don't listen to that kid. If he doesn't know Christ, get away from him. Don't even look at the door. It's, you would save so much time and pain if you would just use some wisdom and discretion and discernment according to the word of God. One of the glaring realities associated with the depravity of sexual deviance is the physical diseases that are associated with having sex outside of the confines of marriage. This, I can't even believe we have to talk about this. There are those who would advocate for the homosexual lifestyle, even within the church. And I have to say, where do you get that from the Bible? And what do you do with sexually transmitted diseases like AIDS? I mean, this is something that it's kind of a glaring red flag to say this lifestyle is not good. This doesn't work. You, you run the risk of killing your flesh. And we're not just talking about homosexuality. It's, it's heterosexual adultery. You, 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 have a, you have a potential to literally rot your flesh away. And that's what Solomon says. Will you give up the vigor of others to, of the years to the cruel one, to the devil? Verse 10, and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien and you will groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed, it'll kill you. This isn't just a fling. This has eternal ramifications and physical ramifications that will literally kill the flesh. I was recently reading in an article 
that it is, is quite common for homosexuals to openly admit to having hundreds, if not thousands of partners. Hundreds of partners in their homosexual activity. Solomon actually warns a married man from considering adultery. He literally says in the verses we've just read, you'll lose everything. And isn't that the truth? You'll lose everything. And that which is most precious to you, you will lose your family. This, look, if you think I'm being a little bit too straightforward with this, there's not a person in this room that should not be guarding against these sweet honey-like words that come from either side of the temptation. These things are always present for us to be guarding against. If an unmarried man committed adultery with a married woman, both were to be punished by death, according to Old Testament law. If death didn't ensue as punishment, by the way, that's not still active today. That's, that's a whole other study and how the law of the Old Testament carries into, I do think that the death penalty is biblical. It's mentioned in the Old Testament and in the New Testament by the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think stoning a disobedient son is mentioned in the New Testament at all because that law has been filled. That's, that civil law has been fulfilled uh, in Christ. But nonetheless, there are still commands that are carried into the New Testament, such as um, if you murder, you should receive the death penalty. But what we're talking about here is these adulterous situations. And even Solomon says, look, if you commit this adultery and with a married woman, both were to be punished by death. And if death didn't ensue, the punishment of the adulterer was to be sold into slavery. So, so you're not only going to lose everything, all the possessions you work for, your family, you're going to be sold into slavery to pay for what you did. Your reputation is slandered. Look at verse number 12. And you say, how have I hated instruction? And, and this man saying, I was so stupid for five minutes of pleasure. He ruined his life. How I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly of the congregation. My name's been ruined. My name is slandered, and more, most of all, you've brought reproach to the Lord who you confess. You bring reproach to the Lord Jesus Christ. But thankfully, Solomon lets his foot off our neck a little bit here in these next verses. And this is the sweetness, the sweetness in verses 15 through 19. Solomon says, drink the water of your own sister." The illustration here is something like fresh water that you possess. It, it's, it's part of your, it's part of who you are. It's what you own. Fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Question mark. Let them be yours alone. What's he talking about? And not, the, not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. What's he talking about? Take pleasure in the wife that God has given to you. Don't, don't run to the door of the adulteress. This is, this is Solomon painting the beautiful picture of the beauty and bliss of biblical marriage. Biblical sexuality. The illustration of drinking your own water is... It's, it, you can almost taste it. It's, it's satisfaction, it's love, it's joy, it's family, commitment, health, strength, support, children, encouragement, security, friendships. All these things are wrapped up into just having that, having that relationship with your spouse that God has ordained. Let your fountain be blessed as a loving hind, as a graceful doe. You can almost picture that. This, this beautiful animal that's in a beautiful meadow and it's it's yours you you she calls you you hers and you call her yours and there's this beautiful mutual relationship that it, it lasts for a lifetime it's such a wondrous thing and it's worth dear ones it's worth fighting for it's worth fighting for it's worth renewing that commitment it is good. I love whenever I hear about these old timers that say, you know what, we've been married for 55 years and we just renewed our vows. And I'm like, yes, way to be. I think that's amazing. You say, look, I'm, I'm fighting for you till the end. It, it's, 
or 10 years or 15 years, whatever it may be. Keep that fresh in your life that you renew this love that you have for that person that you've entered into a covenant with. There's a beautiful thing that Solomon's describing here. He says, as a, as let her breast satisfy you at all times, be exhilarated always with her love. You know, that, that, you remember the first time, you know, my, my wife used to walk past me at, in high school. We went to the same high school. Did you guys know that? I tell you, that, I, t- I told you this before, one person knows, two people know. She used to walk past my locker and she wouldn't look at me. And I can tell you that when she would walk, I remember standing out, this lady's name was Miss Bushy. And she had this class right here to my right. And Miss Bushy was, she loved the George boys. And I, I and every, every day I knew Carla was going to walk from right to left, right? And you sound I feel like a stalker. <laughs> you know? And I knew, I knew Carla was walking from right to left. And I'd sit there with my buddies, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm like, and, and, and she would not look at me. She wouldn't. She was beautiful. Gorgeous. And I can still think that, oh, you know, oh, my heart, you know, that kind of thing. And, and then we, we never dated in high school, never. And, and she was so committed to the Lord that she didn't, she didn't have, have time to date. She just, she was committed and focused to serving the Lord and to remaining pure in, in high school. And, and she, she, she would never even look at me. And then it turns out many years later, it took my dad getting cancer until I finally asked her out on a date. And and, you know, there was that still that thing, you know, you just have that little, oh, that's what Solomon's talking about. Think back to that time. Whenever, you know, you, you had that little flutter thing going on there in your chest. It's good to revisit those things, to find that and be exhilarated always with her love. Be exhilarated always with, with her being your friend isn't that the wonderful thing of, of marriage? Verse 20, here's the question. This leads us to the senselessness. Hang in there, we've got a couple more minutes. Here's the final heading. I can't believe we're here. The senselessness. Why? Why, verse 20, why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? How stupid are you? Why would you do this? You see all this beauty that you have with your wife. Why would you even consider these ways? And embrace the bosom of a foreigner. This is, this is crazy talk. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. You don't think the Lord knows what you're doing? This is the verse for those who are struggling with pornography. You don't think the Lord knows that you're lusting in this way? So many men and women are addicted to pornography to such a degree that they, they are in chains to their own flesh. And this verse in verse 21 the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He, he sees, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he knows it all. He watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. Those who pursue these adulteries, these relationships, these are sinners. These are sinful people that they push off the glories of Christ in order to pursue their own selfish flesh. He will die for lack of instruction, verse 23. And in the greatness of his folly, he will, go, he will go astray. He's going to demonstrate this to everybody. He can't control himself. He has no restraining power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that men, don't, men or women don't fall into sin and, and sometimes grievously. But ultimately, that does not mark the character of a believer. That's not the characteristic that defines a Christian. A Christian is warring against sin and fighting against sin, confessing sin and repenting of sin. How could one possibly see the benefit in committing adultery for a season? When you consider the cost. Now, now let, let's put off the homosexual issue for a minute. And as this major is the, is the major problem, I would say, in the culture in which we live. Let's say I have a young man who comes to me and says, Pastor... I've been having an affair for two and a half years. What am I going to tell him? Am I going to say, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. You just keep that under, keep it under your hat and just try your best. Is that the way that you would expect a pastor to counsel someone who's committing adultery? 
You know, you have a wife at home and your children and you expect me to just say thumbs up to your adultery and, and just keep doing it as long as nobody finds out. I don't want to hurt your feelings, buddy. No, I'm going to tell you, you need to repent right now. You need to confess your sin, not only before God, you need to go get on your knees before your wife and confess this to your wife because you're going to ruin your family. That, or, or should I just say, no, I really need to be considerate about the way you think of me. No, I have a greater concern, a greater priority. You need to be concerned with what God sees. You are not only naming the name of Christ, you're going to ruin your family. Is homosexuality a sin? Yes. Oh, yeah. What should we do with sin? Confess. We should confess and repent of that sin and turn from that sin and look to Jesus Christ because there is the only source. There is the only source of joy and forgiveness and eternal life. You won't find it in some, you won't find it anywhere else other than the blood of Christ. Let me, let me say this one thing in, close, in closing. When we consider, when we consider the cost, just think about this. When we consider the cost that Christ endured, how could we possibly encourage someone to remain in their sin? How could we possibly do that? As 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, we'll look at these verses in closing. Jump, jump around with me here as we bring this time together to a close. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 6. 1 John chapter 1. John is recording here. What a loving letter this is. He uses words like my little children and my beloved. And, and he uses this loving language. When and if you ever speak to someone who is a homosexual in the homosexual lifestyle, you, you want to be pointing everything to Jesus Christ. You want to be pointing every bit of their affections and their eyes to the king of glory. If you come with stones and you come with the hammer down and you're saying, you know, they used to kill homosexuals back in the Old Testament, I can guarantee you you're not going to win that person to Christ. But if you do, as with any sinner, you're pointing them to the glory that is in Christ Jesus, the wondrous salvation and healing that's found only in him, you're going to have a better chance of leading them to Christ and repentance that way than you would with coming with, with swords and bows drawn, as so many often do. And this is the way John converses. He says, my little children. But then he says in verse six, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that's Christ, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves as the adulterous woman in Proverbs chapter 5. And the truth is not in us. It's not in there at all. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous and to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There's this one, two, one, two, one, back and forth, back and forth. If we say that we profess Christ and we live this way and it's just back and forth, but he points out right in the middle that the blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses us from all sins. You know, we recently had an individual here who, who was a practicing homosexual. And one of our dear teenagers, she asked the question, how do you reach them with the gospel? As someone who's a professing atheist, they do not, they do not want to know Christ. They do not know God. Or how do you reach them with the gospel? And, and here's where you begin. There's a God. There's a God. When that is confronted to the mind, the resulting truth that, come, that stems from knowing there is a God and this God has revealed himself in the truth of scripture and he has manifest himself in the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will see that our judgment that we deserve, all the guilt that you're carrying around on your heart has been placed on Christ. 
And the freedom from that guilt is found only in Christ. The freedom and forgiveness of sin is found only in Christ. If you can begin to say, look, you know there is a God and he has revealed himself. You have an avenue to to lead them to Christ through the gospel. Not only has God revealed himself in his word, he's revealed himself in creation. Let's look at one last one, okay, real quick. Isaiah 53. This is a chapter in Isaiah that was written 750 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was ever born. Isaiah 53, look at verse number 6. Look at verse number five. Oh boy. Go to, go to verse one. Isaiah 53, verse one. Who has believed our message, Isaiah says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot or a tender root, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty or comeliness that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to be put upon him, to be fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. But oppressed and judge, oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, are uh, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Does it get more clear than that? Because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth, but the Lord, pay very close attention to this, verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him The Lord was pleased to bruise him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Who's that talking about? That is clearly the Son of God, the Righteous One, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom later in Isaiah 53 is referred to as my servant. Dear ones, there's no one perfect in this room. I'm so thankful that Christ has come to bear our grief, that our guilt and our chastisement that we deserved has been placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ And by faith in him alone and his resurrection, dear ones, we have eternal life. We have freedom from sin and death. There is no greater good news in all the world. I don't don't know why it's so hard for us to, to talk about these wonderful things. I think now more than ever in the time in which we live, we need to open our mouths. We need to be bold. Uh, We need to to share this good news with a lost and dying world. It's so clearly obvious. Um, I haven't decided yet if we're going to preach through these things on January 16th. Um, I'm having too much fun with 2 Corinthians. Uh, 